Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for June 26, 2023. Here's today's rundown. A tsunami of patients could soon wash ashore at your hospital as more than 1.3 million Medicaid enrollees have been disenrolled from the program. It's being called the Big Unwind, and it's a big worry. Reporting our lead story this morning is Tony DeLuca, a subcommittee member of the Pennsylvania Department of Health and Human Services. We will also hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Kyla Wonder, and Kate Brantley, who has the Monitor Monday legislative update. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of healthcare news to report, so we begin this morning, as we usually do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Readmissions are a common topic of concern around hospitals, and and rightly so, but the issue is much more complex than it seems. First, of course, we all want to reduce readmissions. In fact, don't we all want to reduce every admission? Wouldn't it be great if no one ever needed hospital care? But for now, that's not a realistic goal. On the other hand, understanding readmissions is realistic. So let's talk a little bit. First, everyone's familiar with the Medicare 30-day readmission reduction program. CMS calculates a hospital's 30-day readmission rate each year, compares it to the facility's expected readmission rate, and then determines if the hospital will be penalized for the next three years. But why 30 days? Is it because that's the time frame for most preventable readmissions? Nope. Data says that's about eight days. Beyond that point, the, most, the majority of readmissions are due to factors completely outside the hospital's control, like the cost of medications and the many social determinants of health. The reason it's 30 days is because it's a nice number. There are more months in the year with 31 days than 30, but 31 would sound weird, so CMS chose 30. Not exactly scientific, is it? Well, then you have to look at the payment. For Medicare traditional, Every readmission except the same day pays you a full DRG. Purely financially, Medicare readmissions back to your hospital bring in revenue. But how can you quantify this? Well, open your pepper. The pepper reports on readmissions by showing you not only how many of your index admissions were subsequently readmitted to any hospital within 30 days, but also how many of those readmissions came back to your hospital. If you had 200 readmissions and 150 returned to you, you were paid an additional 150 DRGs, and that amount would far exceed any penalty. For one hospital, their readmission penalty was $600,000, but their revenue from the readmissions was over $5 million. Now, don't change what you're doing, but understand the numbers. Now, the other use of this data is to quantify your hospital's patient out-migration. If the first admission was at your hospital and the patient was readmitted elsewhere, you have to ask yourself, why didn't they come back when they got sick again? Was your food terrible? Do your doctors not communicate well? Is your Wi-Fi slow? Or maybe you're a tourist town and patients leave the community and obviously go elsewhere. And as with the all pepper data, there's no right number, but you can look at those numbers. And I've looked at hundreds of peppers. And I would say the average readmit rate to the same hospital is about 73%. 
Now, note, I didn't say 75 because 73 sounds more authoritative, doesn't it? Now, the other side of readmissions, a Kaiser study of 15 of their hospitals for MA patients was just released showing that providing meals to the patients who were recently hospitalized with heart failure reduced not only readmissions, but also death. I expect to see more MA plans offer such programs, but what about traditional Medicare patients? Sure seems like it'd be a great use of trust fund money. Let's hope CMS takes note. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the vice president of R1, RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now, with a Monitor Monday Rack Report is Kyla Wonder. Good morning, Kyla. Good morning, Chuck. It is such a pleasure to be back with you all today. Well, Chuck, hospitals really cannot seem to catch a break. In May, the House Energy and Commerce Committee voted 49 to 0 to advance Bill H.R. 3561, which is also being called the Patient Act. It's calling for site-neutral reimbursement to hospital outpatient departments, both on and off campus, ambulatory surgical centers, and physician offices. The bill draws heavily from MedPAC recommendations, with momentum possibly spurred from the recent hospital price transparency law, the No Surprises Act, and ongoing antitrust concerns within the healthcare industry. Healthcare industry groups, unsurprisingly, have already begun gearing up for another fight, publishing fact sheets advocating for a halt in additional site-neutral payments as hospitals are just beginning to start, (laughs) pardon me, hospitals are just starting to recover from COVID-19's impacts. They argue that reimbursement must be viewed more broadly, accounting for the array of regulatory requirements with which they must already comply and that implementing site-neutral reimbursement is just going to cut into the care, availability, and quality for Medicare patients. But what exactly does the bill propose? Well, generally speaking, the bill proposes unifying those three desperate or disparate payment systems for certain low-acuity services. Beginning in 2026, payment for some services would be reduced from the OPS and ASC reimbursement rates to match the physician fee schedule rates. And this is critical to hospitals because, as we know, the physician fee schedule rates have not kept up with inflation. For a few other services, payments would be reduced to the ASC rate. However, whether those payment rates are reduced will depend on which care setting rendered the services at the highest volume over the prior four years. You heard me right, from 2022 through 2026. If a hospital outpatient department had the highest volume of services, for a particular service, these services would continue being paid at the rate of their usual Medicare payment system. So the, how, the hospital outpatient department would continue receiving ops payments, ASC would continue receiving ASC reimbursement rates, and so on. But if an ASC has the highest volume, then the outpatient departments and the ASCs are going to be paid at the ASC rate. If an independent physician office and the non-grandfathered off-campus hospital outpatient departments have the highest volume, then the hospital outpatient departments and ANCs are going to be paid the weighted average of the difference between the PFS non-facility and facility rates, adjusted to reflect the higher packaging of ancillary items and services paid under OPS. Now, the bill also contemplates cuts to non-E&M services in off-campus grandfathered outpatient departments, starting in 2025. Other than E&M, all services, including those items and services previously exempted from site-neutral payment, would be paid at the site-neutral rate. 
And this proposal, according to the American Hospital Association, would result in cuts of roughly $2 billion in just the first year and $31.2 billion roughly over 10. However, it's not all lost. Let's not look too, too bleak. CMS is also in 2026, under this legislation, going to identify and exempt certain services that can only be rendered in outpatient departments, as well as specific comprehensive APCs for emergency department visits, critical care visits, and trauma care visits from site neutral payment. And perhaps most importantly, this bill has not yet passed. It still needs to go through the Senate and it may not pass as written. The healthcare industry may be able to negotiate some changes into this legislation, but for right now, it would be a good idea for hospitals to keep a weather eye on the horizon. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Kyla. That was healthcare attorney Kyla Wonder. Kyla is with the law firm of Nelson Mullins. She was substituting this morning for Nicole Emanuel. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from healthcare attorney David Glazer, Kate Brantley, Tony DeLuca. He's standing by to report our lead story. And Dr. John Zellum, he's going to give us an analysis of the stories we've been reporting today. That's why we call him The Rapper. It's Monday, it's June the 26th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You are invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join the effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use. See results of the latest physician advisor survey and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as they say every Monday morning about the same time, what could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's misunderstanding the significance of the recent Supreme Court decision in the United States, XREL Proctor versus Safeway. So as several segments on this podcast have explained, the Supreme Court decision was focusing on whether the government needs to demonstrate that a party's intent was objectively incorrect to prevail in a false claims case or whether their subjective intent controlled. Now, this can be a bit hard to understand, at least for me, Um, but the question was, if the defendants thought that what they were doing is wrong, did they have improper intent, even if they can show that there are ways to interpret the law that would have permitted their conduct? The court ruled that even if there were interpretations that would justify the behavior, the defendant had improper intent unless they were relying on those interpretations. Now, I initially found the decision both troubling and difficult to understand. I suspect many of you are trying to understand the difference between subjective and objective intent. But the more I think about the case, the more I think that's a poor use of brain power, and you don't need to focus on it. In fact, upon reflection, I think I understand the result, and I'm actually starting to see it as a gift to both parties in False Claims Act litigation. Let me explain. So in a False Claims Act case, there are two broad questions. First, 
were the claims or the statements made to justify those claims false or inaccurate? Second, did the party submitting the claims have an improper intent? To prevail, the government or the relator who's standing in the shoes of the government must prove both that the claims were false and the person submitting the claims had an improper intent. The new Supreme Court case looks at only one of those two questions, intent. The Supreme Court concluded that if an organization said what we're doing is wrong, unless there's something like an opinion from legal counsel explaining that the conduct was permissible, they had improper intent. But the government will still need to show that the claims are false. And here's where I think this can be helpful. So the most expensive part of most False Claims Act cases is document production. The government asks for and reviews mountains of emails as it attempts to discern intent. Now, the bad news is that the, gov- is that the Supreme Court decision is going to make it much more likely that the government will prevail on the question of intent. And if you're on the defense side, that's definitely bad news. But the good news is that it may be more cost effective and tactically wise to simply skip that expensive document review. Instead, the analysis can focus on the important legal question, are the claims false? After all, if someone thinks they're breaking the law, but they really aren't, their intent is completely irrelevant. And if someone is breaking the law, it's gonna be very rare that they're gonna successfully argue ignorance of the law was actually an excuse. So I think that the Supreme Court creates an opportunity to focus the legal effort on analyzing the truth or the falsity of claims. That analysis is intellectually interesting and can be done much more cost-effectively than a document review. It also puts a premium on having creative counsel. The bottom line is that while there are many observers viewing this case as a win for the government, I think it actually might be a win for efficiency. So Chuck, I always really liked the song Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics. And while the song is most definitely not about this or any other Supreme Court decision, some of its lyrics fit. Don't yield to the fortunes you sometimes see as fate. It may have a new perspective on a different day. And if you don't give up and don't give in, you may just be okay. And that's how I'm feeling about this decision. I have a different perspective now, and I think we're going to be okay. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was Health Attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Kate Brantley with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous. Zealous is modernizing the healthcare financial experience by bridging the gaps and aligning interests across payers, providers, and healthcare consumers. Here now is Kate Brantley. Good morning, everyone. As frequent listeners may recall, the last time I was on your screen, I was discussing the big question marks surrounding the role of AI in healthcare. Well, this week we got a couple of answers, a look at a potential new method that Congress may use to legislate AI, and an announcement that might indicate healthcare will pave its own way in what's being called by Senate Majority Leader Schumer the, quote, AI revolution. Senator Schumer held a press conference to officially present his framework for Congress's legislation of AI, making good on a promise from April where he announced his plans to work towards refining the guardrails that Congress will put on the emerging technology. Entitled the Safe Innovation Framework, the title represents each of the pillars of Senator Schumer's proposal. 
security, accountability, foundation, and explainability make up the word safe, while innovation is what Senator Schumer calls the North Star of all AI policy. Security refers to protection from both external security threats, as well as protecting the American workforce from AI eliminating their jobs. Accountability means making sure that AI isn't used in illegal or harmful ways, particularly when it comes to stealing intellectual property. What areas could AI be used in, but should it be? Foundations of our country include democracy, justice, and our electoral process, and AI cannot be allowed to be programmed to undermine them, according to the senator. And explainability means being able to determine why AI chose one answer over another to ensure accuracy. Senator Schumer also spoke to a new way that Congress might be operating when it comes to legislating AI because it's such a new issue. He stated that this new legislative process will involve what was called insight forums with the, quote, top minds in AI rather than traditional congressional hearings with questioning. He believes that regular hearings would simply be too slow because of the rapidly changing environment of AI. And if they took that approach, Congress's actions would become obsolete by the time they passed anything. These new forums could allow legislators to simply learn, learn about the great potential and the great risks of AI, and then take that back to the drawing board to craft legislation. The Senate already has three scheduled briefings on AI to be held throughout 2023, one on a general overview of AI, the second on how to achieve American leadership in AI, and the third on general defense and intelligence concerns. Senator Schumer promised in his speech that a legislative package would not take years, although weeks was too optimistic, and it should be noted that the AI briefings are scheduled into early winter. You might be noticing, though, that healthcare isn't specifically represented or mentioned in these discussions on creating AI boundaries, as of yet anyways. However, two academics from Stanford hope to lead the way on AI policy in the industry. The dean of Stanford School of Medicine and a director of the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence just launched an initiative that aims to determine how to use AI and health and medicine responsibly. The goals are to use AI to enhance clinical care outcomes, accelerate research on the biggest issues facing healthcare, and assist in educating patients, providers, and researchers. The initiative aims to do this by developing a go-to platform for AI resources and defining AI standards and safeguards for use in healthcare. So, Chuck, although we have a little more clarity on Congress's response to AI, it's equally possible that the healthcare industry might be taking matters into their own hands, at least in developing recommendations and best practices for use in clinical settings. What is clear is that this is an issue that you will continue uh, to hear me talk about for quite a long time. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley. Kate is a state legislative analyst for Zealous. As you heard us mention at the top of the broadcast, more than 1.3 million Medicaid beneficiaries have been disenrolled from the health insurance program. It's been called the Great Unwind. It's also a great worry to many. Here now to report our lead story is Tony DeLuca. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, Chuck, and thank you. And uh, appreciate being on this uh, on this segment. Um, we're going to start back. I'm going to give you a little bit of a background for those who uh, need that. On March 18, 2020, the Family First Coronavirus Response Act was mandated for the continuous coverage of Medicaid to enrollees. Over the next three years, Medicaid enrollment grew by about 21 million people. At the end of 22, the Consolidated Appropriation Act was signed into law, 
ending continuous enrollment as of March 31st, 2023. States have up to 12 months to initiate and 14 months to complete a renewal for individuals enrolled in Medicaid. This process is commonly being referred to as Medicaid unwinding. States were required to submit state renewal reports to describe how they, how they intend to distribute renewals as well as the process and strategies the state is considering or has adopted to mitigate against inappropriate coverage loss during the unwinding period. States also uh, submit monthly reports to assess the state's plan for processing renewals and restoring routine Medicaid operations. Their estimates suggest that as many as 24.4 million enrollees could lose coverage during the 12-month unwinding period. A recent survey of Medicaid enrollees found that two-thirds of the people were not sure if their states were returning to regular Medicaid operations. As of June 22, 2023, the public reports tell us that at least 1.5 million Medicaid enrollees have been disenrolled in 25 states and D.C. 73% of the enrollees had their coverage terminated for procedural reasons, even if they are still eligible for Medicaid coverage. Procedural disenrollments are cases where recipients are disenrolled because they did not complete the renewal process because of outdated contact information or did not complete renewal packets within a specific time frame. Given the high number of people losing coverage due to the administrative process, on June 12, 2023, HHS sent a letter to governors urging them to utilize additional strategies. This includes auto renewals for maximizing the state's uh, data sources such as SNAP and partnering with Managed Care Plans United States Postal Service to ensure contact information is up to date. Efforts to conduct outreach, education, provide enrollment assistance can help ensure for those who remain eligible for Medicaid are able to retain coverage and those who are no longer eligible can transition to other sources of Medicaid or other sources of insurance. The message to states from HHS suggested that HHS will not hesitate to use compliance authority provided by Congress to, pa to pause procedural termination if needed. Healthcare providers are in a unique position to reach out to patients, payers, government officials, and community organizations. The CMS Unwinding homepage is the centralized location to learn more about unwinding and access resources. Unwinding Communications Toolkit provides key messages and materials. Each state offers a variety of toolkits that can be found on Georgetown's 50-state unwinding tracker. Communications with patients is key. Hospitals and providers are in a unique position to do this. Hospitals should look to send out banners to your website, post on social media, send notices via text messages and email to patients. When scheduling patients, create scripts and include information with any additional communications. Push patient portal notification to patients, post relevant information and critical points of access, include unwinding messaging in your statement mailers. Within your organization, you should run reports to determine the impact of unwinding. Understand the possible impact to cash delays in Medicaid approval process. Develop a communication toolkit and plan for patients um, to access as well as families. Reach out to MCOs, find out what they're doing, what their plans are. Educate staff, which is key, from social services, discharge planners, uh, dietitians, anyone who has access to home health to patients at home. It's very important for us to reach out and communicate to individuals. And one of the last messages from the HHS secretary to, to hospitals and to state governors, I urge you to work with local governments, community-based organizations, schools, faith-based organizations, and leaders, including grocery stores, pharmacies, anyone else in your communities that can help serve and pass the message. Right now, from what I see it in summary, we're not in a good place for the such early stages of unwinding. 
I hope we can make the changes needed to outreach individuals so they do not lose coverage. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Tony, very much. That was Tony DeLuca. Mr. DeLuca is a subcommittee member of the Pennsylvania Health and Human Services Subcommittee. Too many regulatory changes, too many auditors, too many instances where if you're not up to date, it could cost your facility an audit. These are tough times for providers, and the outlook on the audit landscape is frightening. But help is here. Now, more than ever, this is the time, and Rack Monitor is the place for you to get on board with a Rack Monitor compliance webcast subscription. Your team will benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational topics from the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education, Rack Monitor. Subscribe to the Rack Monitor compliance webcast series. You and your team will have the latest, most crucial information to remain compliant while avoiding audits and takebacks. It's the Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Series. We have a couple of minutes to answer your question. So, David, please join me. You bet. So, I want to to bring Kyla back for a moment because I thought her segment is is teeing something up that I think is a really big deal. So. Obviously, one never knows whether a bill is going to pass or not. But if it does, what do you think the implications are, Kyla? What do you think happens? Well, I I think we're going to see hospitals really start to struggle because that is a significant cut into their revenue. I mean, I think we're going to see hospitals reevaluating how they've structured, you know, where patients are going to be seen. And I think hospitals are also going to be struggling with the the push from CMS to input or to roll out value-based payment systems. I think that has been a growing push and I think hospitals will be struggling to do that. I also think we'll be watching hospitals struggle to get patients to the highest quality of care at the most efficient rate because it looks like if they do that, say a patient can, could be treated in an ambulatory surgical center or a physician clinic. If those are the places that are providing the highest volume of services, the hospital will ultimately lose revenue. If they're looking at the highest revenue or the highest volume of the past four years, and especially taking into account you know, the end of COVID, where we've been pushing people out of hospitals for a significant amount of time. I think that this is going to have some pretty serious ramifications on hospitals and their bottom lines. It's going to be challenging. I think we might also see physicians you know, leaving hospital systems and heading back to independent practice. It could have a variety of outcomes. Yeah, I think that last one is an inter- because certainly there was an incentive to provide the extra you know, provider-based payment was a reason uh, joining the hospital made the pie bigger, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Ron, do you? I think you wanted to chime in on this. I would just like to point our um, viewers to an American Hospital Association infographic that really discusses the site-neutral issue. And we have to remember that hospitals are unique in that if there's a community disaster, if there's an accident, um, traumas, the, the payment they receive that's above the site-neutral rate covers all those services that they have to have available 24 hours a day. So if site neutrality really kicks in, we may see hospitals starting to cut back on their trauma designation, on their availability of disaster planning services. So the implications are um, can be quite profound for every community where there's a hospital. I think we all agree uh, with that. Uh, Chuck, um, I, I don't think there's any dissent on this particular point. I will turn it back to you. Thanks, David. And thank you, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. And thank you, Carla Wonder, for your comments and responses to uh, David's question. So joining me now for his reaction to the stories we've been reporting this morning 
is the rapper, Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum, it's all yours, sir. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning to everybody. I actually don't have many comments to make uh, this morning. Uh, all certainly very interesting uh, topics that have been discussed, and AI is a very, in my mind, frightening future for medicine and for all of the rest of the world. Uh, I do remember a time when I was a, uh, I just started practicing, and one of my partners actually for Christmas, they used to have skits. And in this skit, he came up with the fact that we're going to have computers. And you're going to be able to put in all of the diagnoses that a patient has and come up with a, a, a plan of treatment and, and a way to cure them of what's going on. And who knew back then, I hate to say how far ago that was, but it was in the early 80s that this would actually become a truth in the future. So um, really, it's, it, it, it's scary. It's scary to me. And there are many, many other instances that I have heard about regarding AI. But otherwise, I really don't have much in the way of any other comments, Chuck. So I turn it back to you. Thank you, Dr. Zellum. That was Dr. John Zellum. He is the founder and the CEO for Streamline Solutions Consulting. And that's going to be your after this live edition of Monitor Money. And I want to thank our guests this morning, Kate Brantley, Tony DeLuca, who reported our lead story, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Kyle Wonder, who is substituting this morning for Nicole Emanuel and Dr. John Zellum. And folks, a program note, there will be no Monitor Monday next Monday as we uh, participate in uh, the 4th of July holiday that we expect will be happening, of course, the next day, Tuesday. So thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you a week from next Monday. Until then, this is Chuck Buck reporting for Rack Monitor and Monitor Monday. Thank you for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.